0: double show special today we're going to help you understand silicon valley bank what's happened so far and we're also going to talk about making sense of practical investing insights into the world of etf investing in case you haven't already started tim phillips is head of content and investment lead for prosperous CGSCIMB cimb uh, securities joining us this morning good morning tim good morning michelle how are you doing really well. Thanks for joining us. Let me give uh, our listeners a little bit of a backstory as to what's been unfolding. Now, this morning, Silicon Valley bank depositors breathed a huge sigh of relief after the U.S. government stepped in to assure depositors they would be able to access their money, approving backstop plans for both depositors and financial institutions. This is the second biggest bank collapse in U.S. history. I am talking about Silicon Valley Bank. Now, this was an old fashion bank major bank not an unregulated crypto bank and this was set up back in 2021 but this past week we saw it collapse in a mere 44 hours a bank run and a bet on treasuries during the pandemic have been among the reasons that analysts point to when trying to explain what happened so here on money and me we're going to ask what's next this collapse of svb last week drove down markets worldwide And we saw an impact, especially on bank stocks. And this included the trio of Singapore's top local banks of DBS, OCBC and UOB. So, Tim, let me ask you, bank stocks Mm. around the world have been taking a hit in the wake of the SVB crisis. First up, could Asian banks be at the same risk of problems that SVB faced?
1: I don't believe that to be the case at all, uh, mainly because I think SVB is quite a special case in that it served really just one sector and one specific sector in the US economy, which was VC and tech. Um, And obviously, you know, these guys banked with SVB a lot. how SVB differed from, say, Washington Mutual. So Washington Mutual was, the, I think, the, the largest uh, bankruptcy of a big bank in the U.S., and that was 2008. You know, Washington Mutual, most of its depositors were uh, just retail, were just, just average mm. people, you know, depositing their savings. Um, whereas with SVB, most of its balance sheet is actually deposits from corporations or from, or, or from uh, venture capital firms backing, you know, specific companies. So there's a lot of corporations that are banking with SVB. And so they're deposits are obviously in the tens of millions if not hundreds of millions so it's a very different case to a you know a, the trio here which are very much focused on well actually they're very diversified first i think one of the big things about SVB is it's so yeah. uh, narrow it was so narrow and it was so focused that it really its deposit base wasn't diversified at all so even you've seen banks in the U.S. take a massive hit, some of the big banks as well, but the likes of JP Morgan and Bank of America, you know, they have very diversified asset bases and loan books, uh, same with Singapore banks as well. And so I think in terms of it being a systemic issue or crisis, I don't think that is the case, which is why if you've seen the, uh, you know, the Fed and the, uh, the Treasury come out and say that they will make the positives whole. I think the key for regulators at this point is that they do not want this to become contagion, right? They don't want the panic mm. to spread. And you've seen that happen with SVB. You know, they said they, they announced that capital raise on Wednesday and it really spiraled very quickly. Obviously, they said, you know, I think the CEO was talking about depositors showing the same trust that they've shown their clients. Uh, obviously, that that fell on deaf ears and people rushed, right, to, to take out. And as soon as that picks up, that spirals really, really fast. Um, so I think a lot of regional banks have been hit. The same can't really be said, I think, for the regional banks and their deposit base. Again, it's also a lot more diversified. I would say one thing with SVB, you know, I read that they actually went around eight months last year without a chief risk officer. So what they have Mm. is a classic sort of asset liability mismatch. Um, Mm. You saw interest rates skyrocket, you know, by what, 450 basis points in in around a year. Um, So they bought a lot of bonds with uh, deposits that they held close to the peak obviously bond prices cratered last year you know they they carried that loss over because of accounting rules the health and maturity securities they didn't need to recognize uh, so they could be effectively carried at cost and so the portfolio that they had of bonds you know the yield averaged just 1.6 percent and you're looking at you know current mortgage yields of around five percent or five and a half percent so they really bought at the exact wrong time and they plowed a lot of money into it um so i think it was just really bad risk management (laughs) i think it's um (laughs) For me, it's, it's, I think it it looks like it's bank specific, but as I said, it's more about containing the, the, the fallout at this point
0: bank specific. Okay, experts, uh, when coming back to the local picture and the question of could this happen here, experts also say that, you know, Singapore banks are different from SVB. The majority of the assets here are in loans and if you look at the bank ratio of securities to assets, that's 15% compared to uh, SVB's 57%. And on the point of bond losses, uh, the larger composition of variable rate loans um, here in Singapore results in what Philip Securities says, the ability to pass on the high- Higher interest rates to customers. And also, Mm. if you look at the rate of deposits, SVB deposits almost tripled over three years, but Singapore Bank's deposits only rose by 22%. So you see a sudden spike for SVB, um, Mm. which points to a certain level of immaturity of their deposits. Meanwhile, Singapore Bank's focus seemed to be on loan growth. And with the rise in interest rates, again, this Mm. point that higher funding costs can be passed directly to customers. Uh, Because the majority of loans are apparently on a floating loan rate. All right. So that's bank stocks around the world versus bank stocks here in Singapore and the risk of contagion. Next question. Do you think that this bailout, you know, the backstop, does it wrap up the deepest concerns? Basically, does the action by the Fed and the Treasury Department solve everything, Tim? Because markets were not rallying this morning.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, futures are up, right? In the U.S., uh, Asia is perhaps a bit different, but I think it doesn't. It 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 wraps up the immediate concern on deposits for SVB, uh, you know, holders of of bank deposits, because I think that was the key: are they going to be made whole? There are lots of companies that are holding, you know, four five hundred million deposited with with SVB. So I think there were worries about access to deposits this morning. Um, So I think that has helped with calming, uh, you know, calming account holders and, and and companies that are exposed to it i think more broadly you know janet yellen of the treasury has said that the regulation is going to have to be looked at in terms of how they're carrying over you know how they're carrying over health maturity securities because as you said with Singapore banks, a lot of them are floating rate, and so they can pass on that cost, which is which is what you do. And obviously, you know, you can you can start to make more money from that, and you're not you're not taking losses. What they did was they they got caught out by interest rates, and they didn't hedge. Uh, so clearly, the interest rate risk was not even appreciated at all. And so what they got caught was was, was basically longer dated mature uh, longer dated bonds that were at fixed rates, right? And then they were stuck. So I think there are worries that this is something that might be visible with other banks that don't have strong risk management but at the moment you know i think it's it's more about start understanding if there are issues with health maturity securities at other banks and and, and identifying if there are shortfalls there uh, i think that would probably be the next step and to understand if that requires you know tweaking to to the financial regulatory landscape because i think in 2008 there was a lot done in the us perhaps less in europe uh, about Showing up big banks and making it less likely, you know, that we're going to have another systemic crisis. And so, big Mm -hmm. banks in the U.S. today are a lot, a lot safer than they were, obviously, 10 or 15 years ago. 15 years ago, you know, pre the GFC. So, I think for the immediate fallout, it's going to be, it's going to be okay for depositors. I think that was the key and
0: the contagion. But I think okay for U.S. depositors, right? but not so much international depositors. Over in the U.K., they're scrambling. To get to, the banks to, uh, banks uh, to maybe I take it. Mm,
1: so I think it's more to do with, with internet, like individual regulatory bodies and what they decide to do. If yeah. they decide to follow like the Fed and the and the Treasury's lead in the US and and make depositors whole. Um, so I think that's up to individual regulators, uh, you know, and their, and their jurisdiction and what they, what they're going to decide. But as for, as for like the actual bank regu- regulations and where, you know, what the next steps are, I think it's going to mm-hmm. have to be looking at, looking at understanding the health maturity securities space and whether that is something that needs to be tweaked from the sort of Fed and the, and the treasury side. In terms of like actually the, in terms of, you know, I think thinking about the impact on broader markets. It'll be interesting Mm. to see. We kind of lost in all this that actually CPI numbers and inflation numbers come out tomorrow. (laughs) So there's a lot of talk about the whole 25 basis points versus 50 basis points. And now I think Mm -hmm. the 25 basis point argument is becoming a lot stronger given the the fallout that we've seen. So I think immediate immediate concerns are that, you know, this is going to maybe make the Fed a bit more dovish on tomorrow, you know, Even if the CPI number comes out a bit stronger than expected tomorrow, maybe it's going to mean the Fed is is, going to lean more towards a 25 basis point rate hike versus, you know, the 50, which which was, you know, I think at around 30 or 40 percent odds is pretty good odds for for a 50 percent, 50 basis point rate hike. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with CPI and then and then next week at the FOMC as well.
0: That's really interesting that this could be a, a lesson for the Fed on um, letting markets price in a bank run um, and what that could mean. <laughs> <for markets. laughs> well, we've
1: seen stuff break now, right? We, things have gone up. I think everyone is asking, when stuff going to stop breaking? And, and I guess now we've kind of seen 475 basis point hikes in a year. Things are starting to go a bit wrong and
0: places. (laughs) Yeah. So will this snap the hawkish Fed cycle? I guess that'll be my next show after Friday. All right. (laughs) Thank you so much for for the insight into S Let's move on to the ETF universe of investing. Um, Can you share with us what you think are some of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to ETF investing?
1: Yeah, I think one of the main things that for ETF investors is a lot of the a lot of the promotional marketing that you see nowadays is actually focused on thematics. And I actually think thematic ETF investing is very difficult to get right. Or if you see it, look at the historical performance of a lot of thematic ETFs. They're just really not matching what you would find in a plain vanilla, you know, S&P 500 ETF, or even just a sector-wide, a sector sort of specific ETF. If you mm-hmm. look at sector-specific ETFs, you know, you can always count on something like healthcare being a very reliable performer over the longer term, just for its structural tailwinds, its defensive qualities, et cetera. So there's actually a lot of a, a sort of value add for investors to look more at just plain vanilla market ETFs, and then also more sector specific ETFs rather than thematics I think we've kind of had a boom in thematics over the past two or three years uh, but they have a lot higher expense ratios which is you know they have a lot higher mm. costs for actually owning the ETF versus a very plain vanilla ETF um, so for example something like a um, something like a you know crane shares CSI China internet ETF that's in that's in Asia that that has an expense ratio of about 0.69%, right? If you buy the S&P 500, if you buy the Vanguard, which is just a, a plain vanilla S&P 500 ETF that has an expense ratio of 0.03%. So, you know, it's literally about one twentieth or one twenty-fifth the price of uh, something that's a bit more thematic. So I think it pays, you know, it bears sort of remembering that just focusing on, on boring ETFs and things that have worked <laughs> tend to actually pay off over time. <laughs> you know, people like thinking... But-
0: I have yeah. I have an ETF dedicated to chip tech or gaming yeah. or DeFi. Yeah. You know, people yeah. want to pick these themes that they think are going to explode. But you yeah. say sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't, and you need yeah. to look out for the costs. Is that it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's mainly that so what's inside it right i mean this is the whole point about when you buy sort of a i don't know a christmas hamper or 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 whatever a goodie bag you probably want to know what's inside it before you go and purchase that right i think it's the same with etfs you have to understand what the components are i mean a lot of these metaverse etfs that i've seen come up they have a lot of names that are just things that you could buy you know generally like you'd have like nvidia you'd have microsoft um and then they make up a really big portion of that of that etf and it's very tech focused, obviously, right? You have a very big tech exposure. And as we've seen in the past year or two, it, it's, been, it's been pretty painful for tech. And so I think it's worth remembering that it's not always these really sort of, you know, innovative small companies that make a big weighting in the ETF. It tends to be these big, larger liquid stocks that you would probably hold anyway in a, you know, in a, in a plain vanilla S P 500 ETF or a tech ETF like the NASDAQ and so i think cost is one of the biggest things as well as as well as liquidity right i think if you're thinking about buying an etf and making sure that it's got staying power you want the aum or the assets under management of that etf to be actually perhaps larger than a billion or two billion because it gives you a bit more visibility on liquidity if you see all the biggest providers they're the ones that have the cheapest costs right like the iShares Mm -hmm. the the vanguards the the state streets they're so big because as they keep growing their mm-hmm. AUM on certain funds, they're able to take those expense ratios and they're able to cut them, right? So I think that's the, that's the key for a lot of ETFs is understanding that a lot of the cost can get passed back to the consumer if it's smaller. But if it's a bigger ETF, you can actually start saving on the um, on the actual expense ratio because in a lot of cases like Vanguard, which is owned by their shareholders, they'll give you back the, the cost, right? They'll return back the cost through lower expense ratios, which I think is, is a really great thing for, you know, retail investors, just everyday investors. So I think that's key to understanding, you know, the, the landscape for ETFs is really focused on the AUM the liquidity and looking also at the expense ratios, because expense ratios, they do add up over time, right? And some of these things can be 10, 20, 30 times the price of something that is really very low cost and very easy to track.
0: Thanks for those insights, Tim. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to pick up on a point you mentioned. So the largest mm. team investing ETF has seven point five one billion dollars in assets. It's called the FlexShares Morningstar Global Upstream Natural Resources Index Fund, GUNR for short, GUNR. Mm. How do I look past the wrapper of an ETF to understand what's in it?
1: Yeah. So I mean, a lot of the a lot of the ETF. Um Providers. I mean, every ETF provider will be regulated, and will obviously have to ex- will have to uh, provide fact sheets and, and uh, a site where you can go visit and understand what's inside it. So there'll all, always be a portfolios and a top holding section on their website or on a fact sheet, um, and they'll give you the top ten position as of you know the end of uh, December or the end of January, end of February, and you'll be able to see what exposure you have to uh, to that. ETF and how it's being tracked, right? And usually ETFs, if they're not active, as in there's not someone managing it actively, um, they'll usually be tracking a, a benchmark, right? Whether that's
0: mm-hmm. sort
1: of like the, the healthcare select sector in, in the US or the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ, for example, um, you'll be able to go and see how it stacks up against that Index and whether it's actually tracking that index closely, right? And and what the um, sort of like what the tracking error is versus the index. And usually, if it's a large index, it should be pretty much tracking it to to a T, except minus obviously the the cost of the expense ratio. So I think it's key that you go check out the provider, understand the expense ratio, understand the top holdings, what's inside it, and really you know look at the historical performance and see how it's annualized as well over sort of five ten years. Because if you're trading ETFs, I think that's one thing, if you, you're if you're just doing using momentum to trade, but if you're actually buying and holding it, it's another, right? I mean, for example, so the QQQ, which is the ProShares, is sorry, the Invesco uh, Invesco pro shares, like uh, Nasdaq ETF, which is the biggest tech ETF that focuses just on the Nasdaq sector. Um, that's the famous one, right? It's triple Q uh an expense ratio is 0.2 percent which is a bit it's a decent amount higher than some of the low cost s p 500 trackers but if you actually are a buy and hold investor you can actually invest into the triple q m which is uh a, it's basically a, a shadow fund but it's just got a smaller expense ratio um it's exactly the same thing it just has it's just you have it's five basis points cheaper so instead of 0.2 percent you you pay 0.15 percent the liquidity is won't be as good, but if you're a buy and hold and you're not trading, uh, you know that helps you. That will that will be beneficial over the longer term to buy something that is cheaper and just hold it. If you're if you're bullish on the Nasdaq sector over the long term,
0: one of the benefits of ETFs is people think of you know getting in in a big way in a market or or an mm. index. So some people think mm. of ETFs as the easiest way to invest in the whole Asian stock market, for example. Yeah, um, yeah What definitely. do you think of ETF investing in Asian markets?
1: Yeah, so I actually don't agree with ETF investing in Asia because I, I guess there are two key reasons, right? One is cost. Um, if you look at the top 10 ETFs in Asia by AUM, you know only two of them have expense ratios less than 0.2%. So actually most of them are around 0.5, 0.6, even 0.7%, which is pretty expensive by today's standards. Number two is, again, it's really a simplistic way to look at i look at investing in just one country or one area in asia i mean one of the one of the best things, I think, when I was working at Schroeder's, one of the best arguments for being active in Asia is that you had a lot of exposure to a lot of, you know, for lack of a better word, a lot of rubbish companies in in benchmarks within Asia, right? You had a lot of state-owned enterprise banks, like in Korea, in China. You had a lot of Korean shipbuilders um, that were just inefficient stewards of capital. You know, In in certain Southeast Asian countries, you have a lot of that history of state ownership, state ownership of either banks or, or, or utilities or other things, and they tend to make up a lot a big part of the index of those countries um and as a result the indexes or the indices of those countries actually didn't perform that well over the long term um you know in the past week we've kind of seen news of vietnam you know ex- kind of getting a lot of investment from china or so from from chinese manufacturers as they deal with the geopolitical fallout so i think the natural instinct for investors is oh I'm going to invest in Vietnam or I'm going to invest into Vietnam, in, you know, an ETF because that must be doing well. The, the country's growing at, what is it, 7% annualized over the past decade or, or, or 15 years, right? It has an amazing GDP growth track record. But If you go look at an actual ETF, the largest ETF is the Eck Vietnam ETF. It's annualized negative 4.6% over the past decade, so that's annualized. So, so over the past decade, it's returned negative 46 every year. And so that kind of explains to you that GDP growth and stock market returns—they're not correlated, right? Just because GDP is strong does not mean that your stock market returns are going to match it. Um, and it's right. important to remember that. So I think some of these emerging frontier markets, which are really exciting from an economic narrative point of view, like Vietnam, they just don't have the liquidity. They don't really have the—they don't really have the the heft of the of their companies that can actually generate returns for international investors and, and finally you know they don't really have the institutional ownership and in part and uh, investor base that can really drive those returns as you kind of see maybe in in the US or in in more developed markets in Asia like Hong Kong or Singapore. So I think it's important to remember that as well when you look at when you look at Asia is that it's more it's difficult to get too excited about ets because you have exposure to a lot of companies you wouldn't necessarily want exposure to. It's also expensive and there tends to be a lot of misdirection with, you know, growth and the story versus the actual reality of returns.
0: Okay. Before we let you go, Tim, you know, you're really yep. famous when there are ETFs that track your position in the market. For example, Jim Cramer <laughs> of Mad oh, yeah. Money, <laughs> they are two <laughs> actively ETFs, managed yeah. ETFs. There's an <laughs> the inverse Cramer tracker uh, yeah. ETF, and then there's a long Cramer tracker. So you can either right. side with him, or, you know, on oh, one those, of both those ways. Those. What do you chance. think of inverse tracker etfs inverse etfs
1: Tim? i mean i think it's it's opened up the investor options which i think is no bad thing. I think you obviously need to be educated on what you're what you're doing right you're going short but Traditionally, mm-hmm. if you wanted to go short, you would, you would have to borrow shares from a broker and then, and then, and then return it later. And that, that whole process is, is obviously very expensive and it's a lot more for institutional level short hedge funds, you know, short only sort of funds. And so I think the point of these kinds of ETS is they brought that to uh, retail investors, but only on specific areas, right? I mean, kind of, it's kind of fun like an inverse Kramer or, or a long Kramer, but I don't, I don't think it's really like an investing philosophy or way to invest. Um, but if you're super bearish on Tesla, I know there's an inverse Tesla ETF that you can buy and, and you can oh. basically go short Tesla if you want to. So I think there are options that are popping up, which are good, but it's not as easy as you know a hedge fund going out there and just shorting whatever stock they want to because there has to be that with the etf wrapper around it right and so that's not that common but i think it's good there's a lot of fun i mean i know there's one for nancy pelosi that that tracks <laughs> nancy pelosi at the house of you know that you know the democratic party and what they're trading or their family members are trading um oh. it's good fun it's good fun but i think you have to look again at the aum i mean the aum of that fund i think is around like five million or something So it's just absolutely like, tiny so it's just there's just really no point of Investing in it as a as an actual investment. If you're thinking about it, speculating and it's it's fun and you think it's 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 a good laugh, that's fine. But I think in terms of basing your investing approach off it, it's probably not the uh, not the best idea. <laughs> no, in terms of actually Asia, like you know what I've written in my latest newsletter is, is focused a bit on that whole story with with Vietnam, right? It's like thinking about not focusing on. Actually, the, the the economic story, but more focusing on the on the stock market story and the stock market returns. And you know, you can sign up for my newsletter at uh, timtalksmoney.com. I'm trying to break down investing basically for Asian-based investors and giving them just a wrap up of of what's happening in the markets in Asia. Because I feel like there's not that uh, that sort of that summary for Asian investors looking at the markets here. And and I try to tackle a lot of the misconceptions about Asia. Uh, how to how to invest in asia and you know what we're worried about because obviously i think investors in asia we're worried about different things to investors in the us i mean we invest mm-hmm. a lot in- the U.S. market, but mm-hmm. our tax structure, our, you know, pension structure, our, our costs, they're all very different. And what we think about, you know, China has a much bigger influence here in, in Asia than it does in, in the U.S. Um, so I think those are the kinds of issues that I am trying to uh, tackle in uh, in my newsletter. So please do, please do subscribe and follow me on, on Instagram as well, at Tim Talks
0: Money. Uh, Tim Talks Money, that's my handle. We absolutely will. Thank you so Thank you. much, Tim. You. Tim. Tim Phillips is head so well. of content. Head of Content and Investment Lead for Prosperous at CGSC IMB Securities. Before acting on the information on MoneyFM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.